Imagine a career or a calling that is so inspirational and fulfilling that five generations of the same family choose to make this their life's work. Well, you don't have to imagine it because today we're going to speak with a fifth generation of such a family, Dr. Saptarshi Banerjee. So himself, his father, grandfather, great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather are and were all homeopaths. So you'll often hear him start a sentence with, my dad used to say, or my granddad used to say, and you really get this feeling that homeopathy is absolutely ingrained in Saptarshi's DNA. I personally find it very inspirational that him and his family also use their wealth of knowledge to help the less fortunate by providing free care to those who need it through their charity, which we'll talk about in today's episode as well. So Saptarshi has a special love and deep, deep understanding of our homeopathic Materia Medica. So for the new homies listening, Saptarshi describes our Materia Medica as the language and our repertory as the dictionary. So in the Materia Medica, which is Latin for medical material, we write up all the information we have about a particular remedy, which has been gathered during homeopathic provings, clinical use, and from a wide variety of other sources. So our repertory is the tool that we use, like a dictionary, to look up specific symptoms, which will then point us in the direction of the corresponding remedies, and then we can read up further about these remedies in our Materia Medica for a deeper understanding. So due to us having an estimated 8,000 homeopathic remedies these days, unlike the original 120 or so 200 years ago, it's very easy as homeopaths to fall into the trap of just repertorizing a case, then finding the remedy from there, and it can sometimes just feel really overwhelming to find the right remedy for a client. So due to Saptashi's deep understanding of the Materia Medica, however, he is able to utilize this to do what him and his ancestors called rapid prescribing, where they're able to prescribe on the spot without the need to use repertories or a dictionary. <laughs> I really like how he has such a common sense approach to the never-ending plethora of remedies that are constantly added to our Materia Medica and yet yeah, really can feel very overwhelming sometimes as a homeopath. So Subtachi suggests learning the 50 most commonly used homeopathic remedies, which we call polycrests, and really doing a deep dive into one of them per week so that within a year, you'll have a deep grasp of each of these 50 main remedies or polycrests. He has many other pearls of wisdom in this episode, and I absolutely urge you to check out his YouTube channel and website as well. I'll have it all in the show notes, and you can just do a quick Google search for him as well, Subtachi. Banerjee, B-A-N-E-R-J-E-A, and you'll find him uh, very easily online. Enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to support our podcast, please visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash hangout to make a once-off $5 donation. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to continue the conversation, come join our Facebook group, Homeopathy Hangout Podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangouts. Today, we get to speak to the incredible Dr. Saptashi Banerjee. Welcome, Saptashi. Hello, welcome. Thank you for having me here. I'm glad to share uh, with you uh, my experiences. Thank you. Wonderful. It's just such an incredible honor to have you on today. Now, normally, Saptachi, I start this podcast by asking our guests 
how they were introduced to homeopathy. But you are a fifth generation, as in five generations of homeopath. So I have a feeling we can probably guess how you were introduced to homeopathy. So I think what I will ask you is, um, what was it like for you growing up in a household where homeopathy is literally part of your DNA? And did you always want to be a homeopath or did you first want to study something else? Uh, to be honest, uh, our my dad's clinic was in the same uh, place as our home. So, you know, we used to live in the first and second floor and my dad's clinic was in the ground floor. So when I used to return from school and you know, seeing lots of crowds of patients seeing him and he's busy, so that you know that rubs off on you on in some way. And you know from very early age, perhaps twelve, thirteen, I I I dreamed of you know I'll have I'll be having this kind of crowd waiting for me. So it was it was a part of seeing that aura and growing up in that. So that mm-hmm. was one of the factors. Also, you know. From a young age, learning like it was like A for aconite and B for belladonna and C for chamomile, it was like that almost. So we grew grew up um, having homeopathic remedies, and so it was a part of our lives from a very young age. So you know, mm-hmm. and that way I, I always wanted to be that. That's incredible, and I, I think you've got a few brothers as well and a sister, right? Uh, I have one sister, um, oh, I have cousin brothers, just one sister, but she's oh. not a homeopath. Okay, so I'm guessing you guys had a lot of homeopathy in your household for every little yes, ailment. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I had to laugh because when I was interviewing Rukshin Master, she was saying, you know, she would see people come and kiss her dad's feet. I'm guessing you mm. probably saw things like that as well, hey? I, I didn't have that opportunity, but <laughs> I, I did, I did, you know, manage to see the crowds, you know, people coming in stretchers and you know, mm. those, those things do have an impact on you. Amazing. And I think she said she was like a teenager before she knew what paracetamol was because you just don't get given yeah, it. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we, we haven't, and I didn't have the mandatory vaccinations as well at that point of time because my dad didn't want to. And, you know, we, we grew up to be absolutely fine. That's incredible. Now, and now that generation's gone on and you've got a beautiful daughter and well, fingers crossed, it'll be sixth generation I, I one day. Be the sixth one, yeah. <laughs> no, no pressure, but you know. <laughs> um, so, and your family has got this college, Allen Homeopathic College. And just a couple of days ago on your Allen Homeopathic College Facebook page, they posted this little video of your five generations of homeopaths and the names of each one of them and a picture of each one of them and, you know, what they did. And, and I thought that was wonderful. That was so cool. And something interesting I noticed is that the spelling of the surnames just changed slightly, like with the EE at the end or EA. Why was yeah, that? Yeah, it was initially EE, and but uh, my granddad insisted on having you know, a little bit of difference. Uh, so he changed to EA, and we have followed that since abandoned years right now. Ah, and well, I hope I- uh, that will continue. Yeah. Well, us, us homeopaths are a little bit different anyway, so it makes sense that he would want to change his surname yeah. slightly. <laughs> um, so one of your one of your ancestors, they created this quick prescribing technique, right? And I think we're going to be talking a little bit about that today, right? Can you tell us a little bit about, I yeah, you said Kolkata prescribing, what is that and how does that you know, work? If, yeah, if you go back in time, you know, maybe say 100 years back and, you know, Calcutta was considered as the Mecca of homeopathy, where, you know, every people from all over the country used to come and study in Calcutta, Vithulkas initially came to Calcutta, P. Sankar and father of Rajan Sankar, and he also came to study in Calcutta. So it was like the convergence of people from all over the world to study homeopathy. And there lots of busy homeopaths during that point of time. And, you know, seeing about, you know, 100, 150 patients in a day. So they had to develop this technique of 
rapid prescribing. It had to be classical prescribing, but it was rapid prescribing. So con combining that rapid and classical prescribing, the device, the technique where you can see and, you know, try and come up with a prescription, like, you know, with my cough sounds, hear the cough and come up with a prescription. My granddad used to say, if a patient is coughing in your waiting room, you don't need to call him inside. You can prescribe on what he's coughing and you can prescribe the remedy. So that method of rapid classical prescribing has evolved from the busy practice in, uh, in the 20th century Calcutta. And we have tried to bring that forward in different ways um, in our practice as well. So, mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? And may maybe I should just interject there and say, if you go, if any of our listeners go on YouTube, type in Dr. Banerjee and type in cough sounds, you will have your mind blown by this incredible video that Saptashi did in 2017, where instead of telling you about the cough, he actually coughs the different coughs and how they sound like. And I have this group of about a thousand mums here in Perth, and we often listen to this video and like watch it. And all of us are just blown away by how you are even able to do all those cough sounds. But you're so right. If somebody's in your clinic, they're coughing. You don't want to sit there for half an hour and ask them about the cough. Just listen to it. Yeah. But how how did you develop this skill? And I mean, you've got five generations that you can, you know, or four previous generations you can draw on. But for us other homeopaths or even home prescribers, what can we do to, to develop the skill? Um, it's again, you know, sometimes all over the world, I will say people do, and I do, we do emphasize on the totality of symptoms while we are prescribing. But in many cases, we fail to see what is in front of us. You know, for example, a patient with a skin complaint comes to us. And sometimes we ask questions from head to foot about his emotionals, about his generals. But we fail to notice what is in the skin, you know, how the skin is looking, how the skin is appearing. And sometimes that is one of the important factors because, you know, we prescribe on what we see. I, that I have learned from, you know, age 17, 18, when I started to sit in with my father that, you know, look at the outwardly reflected picture. What is the patient presenting to you? So, you know, you have to keep it simple and you look for, for a skin case, prescribe on what you see. For a child, how the child is looking and behaving. For, you know, coughs, how the patient is coughing. So sometimes, you know, it helps to keep your mind clear and simple. And that is what I have tried to, uh, you know, incorporate in in. Um, the cough sounds, even, you know, in, in my skin cases where I find good successes in what the patient is presenting me with. Mm. Anything else? Sorry, I'm going to drill you a little bit because this is something that I think is, you know, it's easy to over-mentalize the case, but you're right. Actually, just look what's in front of you. But how how further can we develop that skill? Have you got any other tips for us? Um, to, be, to, be, uh, to be honest, I will say... Um, sometimes it's, if we start from a early, you know, especially for early homeopathic prescribers, we start seeing patients early and, you know, like often what we do is, you know, we finish our curriculum and we finish studying and then we start seeing patients. But when you incorporate seeing patients gradually from your, you know, studying years, I think that that really helps in going a long way so that, you know, you learn that uh, what the patient is expressing and you can correlate what with the patient is saying and the symptoms of your medica mm -hmm. symptoms of the remedy at that point of time and i think 
that will help if we start if we if we concentrate also on treating people at the same time while we are um, studying i think that's that will help in a long way as well so mm. that helps and perhaps you know one of the factors which has helped me is i have sat in for a long time with uh, my father with um, him and seeing patients and you know learning the language of the metro medica my dad used to say that you know that there's a difference between the cup and the lip that you know the symptoms which is there in the book but sometimes we miss it when the patient is right in front of us so mm-hmm. see the people as well as see the book at the same time and you know that will help you draw the analogy at that point of time as well mm-hmm. uh, now you are a master of the materia medica any other tips you have for homeopaths on cuz you know, these days with 8,000 remedies, I mean, I, it's, yeah. it seemed like an impossible task. So what's your advice for us? To, um, in my clinic or in where I run my clinic, it's very difficult to repertorize each and every case, to be honest with you, mm. because time is limited. There's a lot of patience. But what I'll advise to everyone who's listening to me today um, read 50 medicines, 50 polycres. Polycres are, are the medicines which have head to foot symptoms, which are the biggest medicines. But read those medicines like a mother knows her child. So you have to know the medicines from head to foot, from the emotions, physicals. And if you know 50 of those medicines well, you can have a very good practice and you can go ahead. I know the rest of the small remedies, rest of the medium sized remedies, you can always refer to the repertory, you can always refer to your books. But if you know 50 polycres, like a mother knows a child, you'll be absolutely, you know, good prescriber. And I always shared this with my students, shared this with uh, people who are listening in that 52 weeks in a year. So if you study one polychrist a week and, you know, you have two weeks off, you can still finish 50 polychrist by the end of the year. And read it from different classical books, Kent, Nash, Tyler. And, you know, you'll always get a good picture of the polychrist. So... If you are to make a New Year's resolution, it should be 50 polychris in this year. And, you know, one polychris a week, I think it's, that's not too much of an asking if you have a, even if you have a busy practice or even if you have a job, I mm. think you can fit that in easily. I like how you've broken that down into a practical step. And sometimes, you know, it can feel so overwhelming in the world of homeopathy, especially at the moment, because there's so many new prescribing methods, new remedies, everything else. And it can feel overwhelming. But I love what you're saying. One remedy a week. The polycrests have worked for us the past 200 years. It's going to keep working for us, but knowing it really intimately. But even with the polycrests, don't you think sometimes, well, you won't think it because you know them so well. It can sometimes feel like there's so many overlaps and it can seem really confusing. What sort of tips could you give to people to really help them being able to differentiate and get it very clear in their mind? And you said read from different types of materia medicas, but anything else that you can give us? Again, that's that's a, that's a valid question. I think you know if we if we study the characteristics of each of the remedies of the mm-hmm. polycres, and if you have a picture of the characteristics, it will always help you to differentiate between the related remedies. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're using reading Kent, Kent gives a good picture of the emotionals of all the particulars. Nash gives a good picture of the characteristics. So you know whenever you're reading different books, it will help you to combine the idea and get the portrait of the remedy. And mm-hmm. I think that's always helpful. Uh, to differentiate between related remedies. So learn the characteristics first. That will be step one. Then you can go to step two where you are learning about the different particular areas of the remedy. Mm-hmm. So that's always helpful. And that characteristics could be emotional, could be physical. So mm-hmm. that's always helpful, even if you're a beginner, you know, and you read the polychrist, they always give a good picture. 
Amazing. Now talk to me a little bit about slum prescribing because I know that you you know there's there's you see so many patients in in India and there's so many areas that are so so poor and so impoverished where they can't you know afford uh you know very expensive treatments so you have this incredible opportunity there to obviously see a lot of people but you have to prescribe you know, pretty quickly. What does what does that look like? Like us here in the West, I mean, I I usually see about five to seven patients a day, and you know, I only do that three to four days a week. So the concept of seeing sixty people, or you know, in some cases, you would say your ancestors is one hundred and fifty people a day, completely blows my mind. So for us over here that are aspiring to be able to help that many people in a day, what does that look like? Paint a picture for uh, us. Yeah. Um, I'll sh- share a little bit of the background of the slum prescribing. You know, mm-hmm. um, we started this project called um, the Bengal Medical Institute. My mm-hmm. father started in the 1980s, and um, we still now we do uh, um, give milk to poor children in the slums, and we do offer free homeopathic prescribing. So mm-hmm. I go to a particular slum. I have few other doctors who go to different other slums in the city. Mm-hmm. And we give free homeopathic medicines to those areas because um, conventional medicine is very difficult to afford for them. Um, about the slum prescribing, there are a few factors which I think is very important to share with the world. Um, you have to understand here that most of the slum clinic patients we treat are absolutely uncontaminated pictures because they haven't been on allopathic medicines. They're not on other conventional medications. So you get a very clear picture of the patient with clear modalities, with clear sensations. Mm. So in that way, that is a very good aspect where we can prescribe. Secondly, uh, in those slum cases, one of the factors which is also important that patients do come to us where they haven't been on other allopathic drugs. Mm. So that is also helpful and they want to start with homeopathy. So, you know, that is one of the factors which is also quite interesting. Mm. So when we ask the patient and, you know, if you compare when I've seen, I obviously treat patients in the West also in urban India, and, you know, we get, we ask about the food desires, we ask about the generals. And, you know, with those patients in the slum clinic, somebody who is uh, working as a manual laborer, you ask them, what do you like to eat? And, you know, it's, they will smile at me and say, it's only lentils and rice. Mm-hmm. You don't have the opportunity to have sweet, sour, salty. Wow. Um, to... So, you know, even getting generals is a difficult thing, you know, with the food desires. You ask them about your dreams. You know, I, I work day and night and I go to sleep. I don't have any dreams. I wake up in the morning. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to get even the general. So, you know, even with particular symptoms, like, you know, I have a headache. This is the nature of the headache. And we prescribe on the basis of that and the patient gets better. So that is one of the things which, is, which sets these people apart from, you know, urban prescribing or mm-hmm. uh, prescribing in the Western world. And... As I mentioned about in, say, three, three and a half hours, I have to see around 50, 55 patients, you know, in that point of time. But I still have, I try to make it um, rapid and I try to make it classical as well. So, you know, when you understand in those cases, there are lack of general symptoms, lack of emotional symptoms, because the patients don't have the opportunity to think about, you know, how do I feel or what do I feel? If I don't work today, my 
children will, won't get food at night. So it's almost that kind of a situation there. Mm-hmm. So we get lots of skin cases, you know, because in the slums with very close living, we get lots of skin cases. Mm-hmm. And again, prescribing on what we see, look at the skin prescribed. I get a lot of respiratory cases as well. And again, you know, there from I've developed the idea of the cough sounds, you know, mm-hmm. the children coughing, the adults coughing, patients with a lot of tuberculosis in the, in the Indian subcontinent. So we get a lot of cough cases as well. And, you know, fibromyalgia, body ache due to the excessive um, overexertion. Mm-hmm. So there comes the utility of the injury remedies as well. So primarily are um, on the top. And I try to ask about the present complaint. So, you know, if it's um, joint pain, how it started, location, sensation, modality, cause, onset, duration. So I ask about these six points. And if I get generals, I ask a quick generals. If I don't get that, I'll prescribe on what is the presenting symptom. And, you know, I've done this since 2012 and it's, it's still going strong. So, you know, I think that's one of the things which um, you can incorporate and still classical prescribing, you know, Mm. you don't need to always give, you know, like hours to the patient, but you can still give 10 minutes and get a good classical prescribing. Mm. And do you find that it becomes almost intuitive after a while, because you would probably see as most of them probably do the same types of work and eat the same types of food. Like, do you, do you find that you could almost look at a person and almost see what remedy that they're going to need because you do so many cases? Uh, to a certain extent, yes, I will say, but you know, I, I try not to be prejudiced. So, you know, mm. it, sometimes it mm. gets to a point where I feel, you know, you know, like when I see this kind of a skin, it's dry and there's cracks and, I'll, you know, I'll, graphitis will come in my mind, but, you know, I, I try to limit myself and what else can come up? What else can come up? So, you know, I try to do that neg- uh, opposite way so that I don't become prejudice but it it does come to you come to you with the intuitions as well mm. you know it 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 does yeah I think uh, that intuition part of a homeopath is actually like just years of very hard work and seeing lots of cl- clients culminates in intuition. <laughs> it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's actually lots of work behind had yeah. that aspect of it. Um, and another question is, if you think of your urban clients, I mean, because you travel the world with what you do, I just on Facebook, I see you and every photo is in a different country in the world. <laughs> so you, I mean, you see clients from all over the world. And then if you contrast that with the slum prescribing, do you find that, as you said, with the urban prescribing, there's a lot of medications, a lot of suppressions, a lot of pharmaceuticals. Do you find that with the kind of clearer symptom pictures of the slums where there's not a lot of suppression that they do respond to homeopathy quicker or is it about the same that's a that's a very practical question and um the two factors of it i a i do run a slum clinic b i also do run um clinic in the rural areas of of, of bengal mm. where i go there about once a month again in those areas which in in the village area there's also lack of conventional medications so in both the slums as well as in the rural areas, people are not so much dependent on conventional medicine. I get a very clearer picture. And also one of the factors which I want to highlight that, you know, why slum prescribing is quicker? Because, you know, patients will give you very clear modalities, which is like an uncommon modality. And, you know, which a urban patient won't give me. 
when an asthmatic patient comes to me and the patient is telling me that, you know, I'm better by bending backward, I'm better by sitting up, I, I get that modality and, you know, I can prescribe a hypersol in those cases where the patient is better by, you know, bending back. Mm. But for the urban cases, I won't get that opportunity because whenever they have an asthmatic attack, they take the inhaler and, you know, they, they can't tell me how it makes me better. So A, yes, lack of clarity of symptoms in urban cases because of easy access to conventional medication. Mm. B, I will say, yes, it takes a much longer time for cases to be cured in urban cases as well because they're under, you know, like, you know, if thyroid is a little bit high, they put on antithyroid medication. Mm. Blood pressure is a little bit high, they put on antihypertensive. So it gets much more difficult for those drug-dependent cases to be cured as compared to a patient when I'm seeing in the slum and seeing in the rural area because they have not been on medications A, B, they're giving me clearer modalities, clearer sensations, and it's mm. easier for me to prescribe and, you know, quicker recovery as well. But again, with urban cases in the cities, it, it takes much longer time. And even with cases where there is emotional symptoms, quite a lot of suppression with uh, medicines as, as well in the in the city population as well mm. so i think you know it's it's challenging uh for treatment in the cities considering because of the so much suppression mm. but i find also it's challenging in the rural and in the slum population because i get to see a lot of advanced pathologies as well in the slum clinics in the rural pathology, like a person who is unable to walk, is paralyzed, he's coming to me for treatment, you know, in the hope that, you know, homeopathy can do something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's also a bigger challenge because I get to see advanced pathologies where perhaps homeopathy can help. Mm. That's so interesting. And it's, it's so true what you've said, because I constantly have that, I, I only treat women and children, and I constantly have that frustration in my clinic with so many of my clients are on the contraceptive pill. So if I ask them about their menses or their period, which is such an incredible um, treasure box of information for us to know, you know, what mm. is your hormonal system doing, but they can't tell me because they're on the pill. So you don't know, is it the, is the symptoms they're experiencing due to the drug or is that their own unique symptoms? So it does make prescribing so much easier. So I'm really glad that you've mentioned that because exactly. there definitely is something that makes it very tricky. Um, anything else that you want to want to say to us about the, the slum prescribing or the urban prescribing or, Anything that you that you think uh, the homeopaths or the general public listeners will find really useful? Uh, we run a program in Calcutta, which is a two-week program for foreign participants to come and see the slum prescribing. And I I always emphasize that you know in the Western world or people who are listening from all over the globe, sometimes you know we do throttle the patient and you know ask for emotional symptoms, ask for general mm. symptoms. We're not when they are not prevalent in the case. Obviously, in most of the cases, you'll find those to be there. But in some cases, those are not prevalent. And, you know, we do not give that degree of importance to the what the patient is saying, what the, what the present symptom is, what's the modality, what's the sensation. So with years of stump prescribing, I have learned it's sometimes very important to give prime importance to what the patient is saying in terms of his particular symptoms, in terms of his modality, sensation. Mm. And sometimes that can itself be the totality to prescribe in those cases. So, you know, in cases where you're stuck, I'll request those of you listening in today, go back to those cases, study those again, see what the patient was emphasizing on his major presenting complaint. 
So, you know, sometimes that can be a guideline um, to prescribe in those cases as well. So that's very, very important. A. B, sometimes what I've learned from rural prescribing and also from slum prescribing, homeopaths do get bogged down by the pathology, by the name of the disease. Oh, you know, this is a cancer. This is a, a paralysis. I won't be able to treat it. But, you know, again, keep your mind absolutely free from the pathology. What is the patient presenting to me? What is the symptoms? And, you know, you can, you can do the case. I have a case on, I've shared on YouTube where the patient was completely paralyzed. He had been hit on her back by her um, husband and the paralysis started after that. Been to different neurologists without help. I took the etiology of injury resulting in paralysis. I had prescribed a belly spedinus and, you know, she started to walk in six months time. So, you know, sometimes as homeopaths, as beginners do not get bogged down, do not get fearful or apprehensive by the name of the disease. That's what I've learned to be from slump prescribing. Be fearless and keep your mind concentrated on the symptoms rather than the pathology. So I think that's- I love that my t-shirt actually says fearless. <laughs> <laughs> that was I think quite- that's the theme of the theme of today perhaps. Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, actually you made me think of that saying, um, not being able to see the forest for the trees. Because sometimes we're so, you know, we want to make yeah. it more complicated than exactly. it is, but actually just yeah. keeping it really simple and just what is actually in front of you, don't get bogged down by it all. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You just like dropped a golden nugget there that I want to get back to. You said a two-week program. So does that mean that any of us from anywhere in the world can come and join you for two weeks? And You are, you are definitely welcome as my guest to come next year. <laughs> um, so that's an invite for you, definitely. Well, I will uh, but, take you up on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we 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 had to stop it uh, after the pandemic, but my mm. for 2021 and 22, but my father has been running that since 1980s, and I have taken that over since last 10 years, and it's a two-week program in Calcutta, where we take the student. It's primarily for foreign international participants, but we we do welcome Indian students as well, where we do take them around uh, to the slum clinics, we take them to the rural clinics, and we to uh, make them see patients from our Calcutta clinic as well. We promise about 160 live cases in two weeks, uh, but obviously it's more than that, but that's the minimum amount we do keep, that 160 live cases in two weeks. And people from all over the globe have come and have enjoyed you know, seeing live Metromedica in action. So um, That sounds think- incredible. Where do we sign up? <laughs> I will send you, send you details. Okay, so we'll make sure we put it in the show notes. So for any of the homeopaths listening to this that want to find out more information sure. for future. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And um, so can you talk to us a little bit more maybe about the Materia Medica? You said comparative Materia Medica. What does that mean for our listeners? And, and what, what can you tell us about that? Sure. You know, when listeners or homeopaths, those who are studying, I'm sure all of you are conversant with Kent Repertory and Kent's approach. But one of the things which um, colleges, which homeopathic colleges around the world do not emphasize that Kent had was an even avid reader of Metromedica. And because Kent had so much knowledge, so much information about Metromedica that he could develop his repertory. So he had read about 10 volumes of heading guiding symptoms and therefore he had that in his head and he developed his repertory. One of the factors in today's world, in today's teaching is People are taught repertory in the first year or second year, and they're not taught Metromedica from an early age. 
And my granddad used to say, repertory is like the dictionary and Metromedica is a language. So nobody learns a dictionary first. You learn, learn the language first and then you can refer to the dictionary. So what I emphasize, what I try to bring forward to the world is that, you know, again, going back to that, it's learn your Metromedica, know your polycrest, and then you can always refer to your repertory for further information, for further enlightening yourself. So I have developed that understanding of Metromedica and polycrest. And sometimes when you are reading the repertory or when you're looking up a rubric, you'll find five polycrest mentioned for one, one rubric. For burning, if you have a look, you'll find 10 polycrest mentioned. Mm. But again, if you understand your polycrest, if you understand the characteristics of polycrest, then you can understand the comparative metromedica in that aspect. Like for arsenic burning, it will better by heat. For a sulfur burning, it will better by cold. So, you know, that is the understanding of comparative metromedica. And I have in, tried to incorporate that obviously as ancestral understanding, but N.M. Choudhury's metromedica, if the listeners have listened to, uh, heard mm -hmm. of him, N.M. Choudhury is a very good book. And he was one of the first Indian homeopaths to write a metromedica. And he mentioned about comparative metromedica. Each remedy he has mentioned, like, you know, for burning, five other comparative medicines. So, mm -hmm. you know, that sometimes helps to understand the finer differences. Mm. So, yeah. And for whenever, our listeners, that's C H O U D A R Y. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, you know, that sometimes uh, really helps to understand the comparative differences. And mm -hmm. I do emphasize on that. Especially, you know, people who have um, homeopaths who have repertorized cases who are having success, but, you know, there are a percentage of cases where you won't have that degree of success because, you know, you are not reading the metromedica and you're trying, you're not understanding the differences. So sometimes mm -hmm. that's really useful. So you recommend that one as a good book for homeopaths or perhaps even listeners who want to really get the nuances of the differences between the remedies, the polychrists. Ex uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even if you're treating acute cases, you know, if you're, if you got a cold, you know, for a beginner, you're, you're thinking of giving aconite mm -hmm. and, you know, in the aconite chapter, you'll find five different remedies mentioned for the differences for cold. So you can understand when to give aconite, when to give dalcomara mm -hmm. or when to give a branion, because if you repertorize, you know, for a coriza, if you repertorize for a fever, you'll find all the polychrists are coming up. All yeah. the acute cold remedies will come up. So that's that's really helpful for understanding the difference. That's really cool because that's one of the things that can be most deflating when you're a new homeopath is when you do repertorize and all these things come up and you're like, well, there's like 200 remedies here. Where do I start? And yes. yeah, so when you know those nuances and you can really, you know, get down to that, it really does make a big difference. And then when you talk about behavioral material medica, what do you mean? That's interesting thing. Um, as I mentioned, my like uh, my dad used to travel as well and used to teach all over the world. And when I was, you know, in my in college, I used to travel with him as well. And when we were sitting at the airport, he used to ask me, "Who is this? Who is this?" So you know, like a really tall, lanky guy who's you know not not got a clean shirt on, who looks rugged. You know, he was sulfur. Yeah. <laughs> a person who was sitting next to me in the flight, he put up, he opened his socks and his socks. He had smelly feet. That is telling me silica or berita. <laughs> so, you know, so understanding from the gesture, posture, you know, somebody who was sitting in, in, the, in the airport and he was very reserved. He's not talking 
and is very stoic you know and it could be a natrum obviously you know mm-hmm. those are um um thoughts but you know just developing that eye that when somebody walks into your office walks into your clinic sometimes it's important to have the observational eye on and how he is behaving how he is gesticulating how is his posture is so you know that sometimes um helps so you know that i started you know as i used to do that and you know that has come up with me on my clinic uh, as well so you know that's really fun to do actually actually just sitting in a cafe and just watching all the people and like guessing you know what remedies they might be but like you said also just honing that skill so that we're seeing more than just what's in front of us that our all our kind of senses are engaged and i find that sometimes i'll have a client in the clinic and you know i might i, I might get this like aggressive type feeling from them and i'm like why are they here they clearly do not want to want to be here like i almost get this feeling like like they're almost challenging me and then uh, one of the lectures I was doing, they were saying, if you get that feeling from the client, it could be, um, I think it was cephalinum, actually. I think it was the Colin Griffith webinar. But, uh, you know, what, not just like, what are you seeing, but what are you feeling? What's the energy that you're feeling from yeah, that exactly, person? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, because I only see mums and children, sometimes they come into the clinic and the kids will make such a mess. There will be things every, everywhere. And the mums are apologizing the whole time. And I'm like, please don't apologize. And sometimes the kids are so loud, we can't even talk to each other. And I'll say, don't apologize because even what they're doing, you know, sometimes don't even need to say anything. You can just observe the way that the child is doing it. Are they throwing things? Are they hitting the mum? Are they jumping from one thing to the next? What is their energy? You know, are they very quick in their emotions? Are they uncoordinated? Are they coordinated? Are they trying to climb on everything? So as I pass, we like try to keep a little eye on everything. So sometimes, you know, you might not my mom, the mom might not be able to get a word in sideways, but that in itself is enough to tell us which remedy the child might need. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes it, that that observational study is is itself an important part of the prescription. Mm. And I also like to share another thing, which I is a very interesting book for the readers: "People of the Materia Medica World" by Gladwin. That was he was one of the students of Kent, and he mentioned, and that I think that I have loved that. You know, it, it's a good read on your holidays as well. Um, like the sulfur grandson and the sorinum grandfather, they're together in the room, and sulfur wants the windows open and sorinum wants the windows closed. So you know, like you know, pe- families who have you know same characteristics, and I think that's a good read to understand that uh, behavioral materia medica. That's very cool. Did you say the book was called People of the Materia Medica? People of the Materia Medica World. I've never yeah, heard of way. that. Okay, yes. I'm going to look that up. Gladwin will... was uh, perhaps a student of Kent, perhaps. Yeah, that's very cool because uh, we have just had somebody on the uh, on the podcast, twenty um, fourth of June. Oh, actually, her episode's coming out today. Uh, Sunita Venchard. She released a book called um, I want to say it's Revive, but it's, is it Revive? It, it's a short. It's a short word like that, and it's about Queen Platina, like the evil Queen Platina. Okay. And then this person goes on, and each of the characters have got you know, it's based on the Materia Medica. And I actually think for our new students, uh, it's such a good way to learn your Materia Medica as well. Like actually. It's a fun way, you know, you know, you can, you can keep those um, thoughts in your head, you know, you can go, that helps um, as you go forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you have a, Awesome YouTube channel. So that is one place that people can get hold of you, Subtachi. But where else can people get hold of your work and your courses? And if they want to engage with you or book with you or, you know, donate to your charity or something like that, where do they get hold of you? Um, in my YouTube channel, you'll find all the de- all the um, 
all the teaching as well as uh, the part of the Calcutta program. There are quite a lot of videos on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have I have my own website which which was started last year, and you can find details about my courses. I do run a postgraduate program, which is um, based on the therapeutics and. Um, it's a 12 session program. I'm I'm into the second year for that. And I plan to start a new program on Polycrest next year, which I think is 50 Polycrest, like what I mentioned. And I'll mm. try to do that. I'm planning to do that next year. And obviously, the Calcutta Clinical Program is run by me and my father. So that's, um, you'll find all the information in our website as well about the Calcutta Clinical Program. It's www.saptashribanerjia.com. So uh, you can find the details on that as well about our Calcutta program. And that's welcome to everyone. Uh, Our charity is, as I mentioned, uh, is donating milk. We have uh, three, four slum, uh, we have four slum clinics actually, which is run by different doctors. So you can donate to the charity as well. It's also on the website. So those are some of the works uh, which I try to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I'm allowed to put in a personal special request, your videos, we like at the coughing video, that's my ultimate favorite. I love your crying sounds video where you're actually doing the different cries and, you know, showing the difference between the whimpering and the, like the hard cry and the, it's, it really helps you to understand the remedy so well. And your stuttering video is so good as well, because you know, if you just think of, you know, uh, the m- medical profession, if your child has a stutter or a stammer, we'll just stick a label on and say you've got a stutter. But in homeopathy, there's so many, diff- there's so many different types of stutter. So understanding how one is different to the other and how you actually make all those sounds. And um, I would, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how you do that. So my personal request to you, please, Saptachi, if you can do any more videos like that about coughs or about things that people do, you do it really well. And if you decide that homeopathy is boring and you want to go into acting, I think that would be a good role for you as well. (laughs) You do that very good. Is there any last message that you want to leave our listeners with? Um. When I started off um, in in about two thousand six seven, that um, I always I you know pe- people around me used to say homeopathy is difficult. You know there are only a few successful homeopaths. You know you cannot be always successful in that. But to for beginners, for students, for those who are contemplating joining homeopathy, I will say you know homeopathy is fun and it is simple. So, you know, always keep yourself simple. Don't make it complicated. Um, You know, that will always go a long way into you having a busy practice. And also, I learned this as from my granddad that if you love your materia medica, jewels will fall before you like the falls of Niagara. He used to say to me that, you know, love your materia medica, be passionate about it. And... Like, you know, what you'll see in my YouTube videos as well, I, I always share about how the person is, how the nature is. It's, it's like, you know, like Nagzomika is my friend or Pulsadilla is, is my wife. It's like that, you know. So you know your drugs, like remedies, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's your family. And when you're passionate about homeopathy, you'll definitely have a good practice. You'll definitely help people. And one of the major ways of making homeopathy more popular in the world is by treating people, is by helping people. So, you know, we do go and emphasize 
in different webinars about you know teachings but more you learn and more you can prescribe and help people you know it will gain more um, importance in the present drug dependent 21st century mm. so mm. i think that's one of the very important things um which i like which i wanted to share that is absolutely beautiful and i think that quote we need to get printed and have it put up in our clinics to just you know keep us focused on what really matters <laughs> that's beautiful Thank you so much for sharing your time so generously, Saptarshi. I know you're a very busy man, so I really appreciate today. And I know it's going to mean so much to so many people listening. Thank you so much. Thank you.